Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. This episode is recorded from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri, Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. First Nations people have been custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonisation is a process that law and regulation have been deeply complicit in, taking land, sea, children and lives. I want to acknowledge that despite this, 60,000 years of wisdom continues, and so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligation to take a daily personal responsibility to support reconciliation through truth and justice. Today is another powerful episode examining a hidden issue, children and young people as family violence survivors. Often when we discuss family violence, children and young people are absent in our mind, and if we imagine them at all, it's often as extensions of the mother. But children and young people are often victim survivors themselves, either witnessing family violence or directly experiencing family violence. Melbourne City Mission's Amplify report, written with young people, examines where law, regulation, our systems and our communities are failing young people. Interactions with policing, healthcare, housing and education systems, well, there should be opportunities for help. They often become another instance of harm for children and young people. I'm joined today by two experts who've been involved in the report, Shauna Moore and April. Shauna is a social justice lawyer and advocate and is dedicated to driving positive social change for children and young people. She is currently the head of public policy and government relations at Melbourne City Mission. Shauna brings about uh, brings almost 15 years of experience in executive policy and advocacy roles across the community legal, youth and homeless sectors and has led successful campaigns on issues including family violence and youth homelessness. Shauna also draws on her own lived experience of family violence, adding a depth and understanding to her work. April, a pseudonym I should add, is a youth advocate passionate about changing community services so that they work better for children and young people experiencing family violence. April has lived experience of family violence and works with children and young people experiencing family violence in her capacity as a peer worker and consultant. She's also working at Melbourne City Mission and sits on the Victim Survivors Advisory Council as a rep for young survivors. A note today that as you may guess, this episode touches on difficult experiences, including suicide, sexual assault and family violence. So if you need, please keep your supports close to you as you listen to this episode and I hope you take something from it. All right, comrades, Shauna and April, the first question of this podcast is, why does regulation matter to you and your community? So how do you respond to that? Regulation matters to children, young people experiencing family violence because often in our own family system, there has been so much chaos and instability and unsafety that we often don't have the parents to advocate on behalf of us and for our needs and what we want and have to rely on the regulation to keep us safe. And it matters even more when regulation isn't working because as children, young people, we have less agency and choice in decisions being made about our lives. Um, Often that's done without us, even in the room. And when experiencing family violence, we are used to our own behaviour being controlled by violent people and we should have the least restrictive practice in our own regulation within the family violence service systems. Yeah, profound, April. The There's something in there about when your own internal family systems fail um, and there's a lot lack of safety there that you require regulation from the, stra- uh, from the state uh, to, to create safety or maintain safety for you. Shauna, you talk a lot about um, and work a lot on um, 
family violence as it affects young people. Um, how do you respond to this question? Thanks, Simon. Um, pretty hard to follow April, but um, I'll take it up a, a, I guess I'll take it up a level. Um, I think regulation is important because it uh, creates rules for society and, it, and it's what makes us function, I guess, as a community and not as an in individuals. Um, without it, it's, it's likely our society, as April said, would be in chaos um, and people would, I guess, be left to govern themselves and, and that tension would arise between rational and emotional reactions and, and morality and immorality. And, and I was thinking about the answer to this question, Simon, because as you said, you asked this question at the, begin, at the beginning of most podcasts and, and it makes me think of that movie, Lord of the Flies, um, mm. where we see that play out. Um, but as April discussed it's it's really important to have regulation to protect those in our community who have less agency or less voice um, like we said such as children young people or people with disability or um, mental health issues um, and although I think regulation is extremely important I am a lawyer after all I, I also think that regulation must be continually reviewed as we evolve as a community so as technology evolves, as new research is um, conducted, and as we see systemic patterns emerge, especially you know in this um, in this world of so many disasters, uh, the risk I guess with regulation today is that there are too many unintended consequences, and we're not uh, continually um, improving or reforming that regulation fast enough. So we see often these laws and systems that have been created to protect, so victim survivors um, or people experiencing complex mental health issues, that end up being used as a weapon um, against them. So, you know, I think about misidentification um, of women and young people as primary aggressors in family violence incidents um, is an example of that. And that is a significant and escalating issue in Victoria, probably for another podcast. Um, but honestly, the majority of women and children in prison are victim survivors. I think yeah. just on that, oh, oh, sorry. No, April, please go. I think just on that as well, Shauna, like, the regulation matters, but it also matters how the regulation is made and who's involved in those decisions and and how children and young people fit into that within a system mm. that's built for our involvement. It isn't built to be accessible to children and young people, laws and legal matters. Um, it's built in a different language and how can children and young people be involved in those different processes in a meaningful way that actually makes sense to us? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more, April. The importance of um, children, young people's voices and, and also the lived experience, if they have lived experience, to help, um, you know, design and shape and provide that insight in when, we, when we're creating and reviewing those, reg, you know, regulation and policies and laws. So, yes, agree. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, April and Shauna, you've touched on a couple of things there and... Something in what you were saying, April, it started to sound a bit like family violence to me, or that was my understanding. I'm hoping we can lean in and take a bit more of a dive into that issue. And and specifically, I'm, I'm wondering, what does family violence look like for children and young people? And second to that, what does our mainstream messages and media say about family violence that maybe isn't accurate or isn't reflective of, of young people's experiences? Yeah, I think it's so hard to answer these questions because family violence is experienced so differently by every child or young person. I um, mean, it looks different for every victim survivor, but there definitely are common themes within our experiences, though, from um, my own lived experience and a lot of the work that I've done with children and young people experiencing family violence, um, like not being included in decisions about our own lives. Children and young people experiencing family violence, um, when we're asked what we need, we're really not asking for much. It's, mm -hmm. it's things, being heard, being supported, being believed. This looks different for every child or young person and we all need different things. And the only way to find out what we need is to ask us. And it's important to have the hard conversations with children, young people about what makes us feel unsafe and what family violence looks like to us. 
Without having these conversations, we may not even know that we're actually experiencing family violence. And this can be really hard not knowing because you can't tell people around you what's going on. You don't have the language to describe what you're going through. And it can often lead to putting the blame on yourself and feeling like it's it's your fault that this happened. But it, on the flip side of that, it can also make it really difficult knowing that you're experiencing family violence and knowing that what people are doing around you is wrong mm-hmm. and it's happening and having to see them and pretend like everything's okay um, because a lot of children and young people still have to see people who use violence even if they don't want to, whether that be through court, um, coercive control, other adults and people around them. What I think the mainstream media is missing is what family violence looks like through a child or young person's eyes, especially that conversation around discipline and family violence. Within generations, it's changed a lot and it can be really hard to identify family violence and and coercive control with children and young people because of that natural parent-child relationship, which involves parents' discipline and and punishment. I think for me, it it started off with the little things, like put down, making you feel different or unwanted or unloved, not being able to see your strengths that you have and only being made visible your weaknesses making you feel scared and trapped within a house that doesn't feel like a home. Feeling like no one understands or or gets it and no one trusts you enough to believe you over a parent. Then also having physical violence perpetrated against you and blaming yourself and feeling like, oh, it was my fault. I did the wrong thing before they were violent towards me. Yeah, and as I hear you say that, it just reminds me that young people or children and young people's voices in discussions about family violence are so rare. And and where those voices are present, I'm not convinced that young people are necessarily treated as experts on family violence, despite the fact that uh, they would have lived expertise of both family violence and you know failing systems um, that deal with young people affected by family violence. Um, Shauna, you've got a, a wealth of experience in this space too. I'm wondering how you respond to that question. Look, I think mainstream messaging um, and our understanding about family violence and its impacts has definitely increased and evolved, um, especially uh, in Victoria, but it is still centred on women's experiences and through that intimate partner violence lens, um, which often means violence, of course, from a male partner or parent against their female parent. And and I just want to say before I go on, I want to make it um, really clear to anyone that's listening that family violence against women is horrific and pervasive health crisis in our country um, that must be stopped and needs a lot more investment and reform um, and that family violence must be seen through a gendered lens but an intersectional lens is also critical mm. and I guess that's what we're speaking about today and we must recognise children and young people as victim survivors in their own right as well but as April mentioned unfortunately children and young people who are experiencing violence are still even six years on from the Royal Commission seen as extensions of their parents And when we began the Amplify research um, and we referred to young people experiencing family violence, there was this assumption that we were referring to those children and young people who accompany their mother, generally to a family violence service or refuge. There was really no acknowledgement of the young people who are directly experiencing family violence. And in some cases that may be from a sibling or or their mother. and they end up fleeing home without that protective parent. So I'm talking about the young people that are, I guess, too old for child protection on the ground, um, over the age of 16 generally, who are not yet considered an adult, but also not given that same level of protection of you know, a younger child or a toddler. So unfortunately, we have a system, you know, that adolescents and young people are largely recognised as enacting harm under our family violence system and, and in our media, both at a state and federal level, and their identity as victim survivors is overlooked. Um, mm. the, narrative, the narrative is very much that women and children are victim survivors, which they are, uh, as I mentioned, um, and adolescents use violence, and this is completely wrong. Um, some young people use, use violence in their homes. Many of them we know um, from research are also experiencing family violence and have been for many years and are responding to their own trauma or sometimes acting in self-defence. But there are a lot of young people um, experiencing family violence who respond differently to their trauma as well. So 
I often think um, of that fight-flight response. And it's only when a, a young victim survivor uses violence that they become visible to the system. And, and we know that comes crashing down on them in, in every way. Um, but the others remain invisible and overlooked. And we know many of these young people, especially the young women, continue to live with the violence and end up in, you know, experiencing family violence in their intimate um, partner relationships as well. Um, just lastly, I'd also say that the impacts of family violence on young people are not well understood yet, or in um, some cases, the risk uh, is completely underestimated and downplayed. I often hear things being said like the risk of family violence is not as serious for an adolescent or a young person um, compared to other victims because they're not being or they're not generally being pursued. Uh, however, this is false. Um, the impacts are immense, including, um, you know, hospitalizations, um, both in, a, in acute mental health wards or, or injury and self-harm, as um, April mentioned before. There's also young people, um, and the numbers are growing, sadly, that are taking their own lives to escape family violence. And this is, of course, the case for women and all victim survivors. So um, in answer to that, I'd say that the impact of family violence on young people is enormous and can be fatal, but not enough has been done to identify or understand and raise awareness of family violence, you know, suicides, for example. And this is not taking away from anyone else's experiences, but adding to the family violence narrative. And I know, um, April, that, you know, you also speak passionately about the need to stop downplaying children and young people's experiences in family violence. So, you know, please feel free to jump in if you've got any further comments about this as well. Yeah, I think there's a way we can acknowledge that family violence is a gendered issue and at the same time be making space for other experiences. Everyone deserves their experiences to be validated um, in conversations with a worker, in research, the way it's communicated about in the community and also a service response that works for them. Um, because if we don't make space for other experiences, um, children, young people are going to go through mainstream women's services for family violence issues and it's not going to work for us. The impact of family violence on children and young people doesn't just last while the violence is happening. It isn't just in the home, um, how they're feeling at the time and the violence that they're experiencing. It lasts a lifetime and it doesn't just end once. If the parents separate, it doesn't just end once. Um, we have a different housing and living situation it continues the impacts psychologically, emotionally, how we see and feel about ourselves, how we connect with others, how we trust in relationships in the future and mental ill health. Um, it just has such a big impact that I think isn't understood yet because we aren't communicating with children and young people about how has this impacted you in the short term in the, and also in the long term. And having those really open and hard conversations that children and young people are leading and, and being included in about what family violence looks like to them and also about what support they need because it's going to be, look different for every child or young person and isn't always just that sit-down talk therapy. Yeah, and to pick up on the last point that you made there, April, the, the impacts of family violence on mental health, it really is odd that we haven't given much attention to that when we know the impacts of, of violence and, uh, and abuse and neglect and social adversity in general on um, young people's uh, mental health and their mental health later in life. We know this from you know, a wide range of uh, disciplines, but you know, attachment theory, developmental psychology, this is a well-known truism. And yet we're not devoting this level of attention in terms of family violence policy um, to preventing that, those kinds of experiences. So yes, odd to say the least. Now, a, a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, this will be new information. It'll be turning over the, in their mind that, oh yeah, it's not just young people accompanying the, the mother to the family violence service. Those young people and children are, are victim survivors in their own right. But then I guess the next question that might pop up for people is, okay, so, you know, these, these children and young people are um, victim survivors of family violence. I mean, where, where are they going for help? 
So how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think children and young people are going to a lot of places for help um, when they can and when they feel ready and when they feel like they have um, the space to do so. I think children and young people are going to their parents, um, they're going to siblings, they're going to schools, police, the courts for support when experiencing family violence and, and also services, but not just family violence services. There are a lot of touch points where young people experiencing family violence are interacting with, and it isn't always being identified and supported through a trauma-informed lens and through a family violence lens. For example, mental health services, children, young people may be struggling with self-harm or managing emotions or using violence. And they often diagnose young people with a mental illness and try to work through different treatments like CBT or DBT without even knowing we are experiencing family violence and that these are survival mechanisms that we can't unlearn whilst we're still living in family violence situations. We are going to these types of services for help, but there isn't that family violence lens on what we are experiencing. Or another example, police, young people are going to the police for support and not getting believed over a parent. There has also been situations where Victoria Police has asked a young person who asked a person who uses violence, um, in this example, a parent, if the child or young person should be charged for their first offence of shoplifting. As well as being a young person, um, as when a young person is getting interviewed, not giving the child or young person the option of an independent person. So the child or young person thinks they have to call a parent who is using violence. My first memory of family violence and experiences of violence isn't I guess the dominant narrative of family violence that um, the dad hits the mum while the kids watch. Um, for me, it was with my siblings, my first um, experience. They were very physically, emotionally and psychologically abusive to me and my other sibling. And it would involve things like hitting, pinning us to the ground, verbal abuse, walking us out of the house and getting chased around the house with a knife multiple times. <laughs> At the time in primary school, I remember going to one of my teachers and saying that my brothers were really mean to me. And she said to that, that it's okay, siblings fight. But I was trying to disclose the violence I was experiencing at home and that I didn't feel safe. And I felt very scared for me and my other sibling. And I could just feel that something was wrong, which is why I tried to talk about it. But at the same time, I also thought, it was normal because this is what I've grown up with, this is what I've experienced. And um, my teacher said that, you know, siblings fight, that that's just what happens without understanding the complexities of family violence. Growing up experiencing family violence was very difficult. I felt very alone. Um, and I think there's a common assumption that siblings bond closer or if there's a safe parent they bond closer with their child um, and their relationship gets stronger but that isn't always the case and there was just a lot of chaos and violence and um, I felt very alone and not really connected to anyone in the family. My mum took me to get an IVO after I got physically hit and during that process I was never once told I had experienced family violence or that what happened wasn't my fault. I was also not told to do what to do if he breaches an IVO or given any links to support services or any information. It might, may have been given to my mum, but I wasn't directly informed. I carried the blame of his violence for a very long time on my shoulders, but as I've grown to understand and make sense of what family violence is, I, I feel like I've given the blame back to where it belongs. I would also run away from my dad's house a lot um, because I didn't want to be there. I felt very trapped and I didn't feel safe and 
he will put a missing persons report out on me. And as far as I'm aware, the law states that they just have to cite me and make sure I'm living and I'm okay. Um, and that was it. And then they would leave. Um, but the police officers would be on the phone to him and I don't know what he said. I can only assume that they were saying things like, I'm a bad kid, I'm into drugs, it's not safe for me to be out. Um, but wherever I was, I felt a lot safer. And I would get put back in the back of a um, divvy van and taken back to an unsafe home and wasn't asked any questions around why I left, um, why I didn't want to be there. Um, I wasn't included in any of the conversations. It was just, we're going to drop you back there. And I didn't get a choice in that. I went to go get help from school, my parents, the courts, um, Victoria Police, and I didn't get the support that I needed, which I know is a really common experience for a lot of other children, young people, um, especially the ones that I've talked to and work with, that they don't get the right support that they need at the right time. Yeah, wow. Profound, profound, April. I, I, I'm not sure I can really add to that. Um, I often try to build on, on people's responses, but what you've said there, I think I'm just going to acknowledge what a privilege it, a privilege it is to have this conversation um, with you both and um, to learn from your experience and um, and really just pass to Shauna um, to see how she responds to, to the question and to what you've said. I think I'm on in the same boat. Thanks, April, for, for sharing um, your story. And, and I think, you know, you've explained it so eloquently and and from my own um, professional and, and my own personal experience of growing up with family violence too, that when you're growing up in a home with family violence and that's all you know, um, a child or young person will uh, not generally identify the behaviour as family violence. It is very normalised and um, their identity is not a victim survivor. Um, and the research uh, is very clear that young people are unlikely to present to services asking for support for family violence. And um, yeah, as April mentioned, mental ill health is a very common uh, representation for a young person experiencing family violence at home. And so is running away from home or couch surfing, skipping school, uh, turning up with incorrect or unclean school uniforms, um, disruptive behaviour in the classrooms. So many of these um, behaviours that the system is so quick to punish and, and not just, you know, the police or courts, but schools as well. Um, but in fact, we need to be looking underneath the behaviour, as April said. Um, therefore, it's so important that there is family violence expertise and responses embedded in schools, but also in those other places that young people frequently visit So um, already. So um, or they turn to for help, such as the local youth services or mental health services or youth homelessness services, um, and of course, specialised services like multicultural LGBTIQ+ services so it's just really important that we don't expect a young person to you know put their hand up and say I'm experiencing family violence and I need to go to a family violence service that's just not how it plays out in reality um, and it's really important that um, the whole system is set up um, to support children young people and and they're the ones to identify you know these red flags um, and really you know not punish a young person but try to understand their behaviors and generally you will find um, that they have been experiencing some sort of, you know, um, family violence or other kind of um, issues happening in, in their house growing up. And it's really important that the system's not there to punish them, but there to support them. Yes, couldn't, could not agree more, Shauna. Um, so, I mean, we've covered there where people are going for help and, and maybe what they need. Um, but now I guess I'd like to know, well, what are the services and systems response when people do present or people do ask for help? Most of the time, unfortunately, the system response isn't good and does further harm to children, young people experiencing family violence. And this may not be intentional, um, but, it, but it does happen. There are already so many barriers that children and young people are facing when experiencing family violence. And then these different systems, they just keep putting up more barriers. Um, for example, getting 
excluded from education because of missed attendance or behaviour. I, I got expelled because of um, showing up to school late um, because I was in the wrong uniform, because I was um, a disruption to the class, because I didn't listen to the teachers and, and all these different reasons, because I stole food from, from the school and it feels like like not only do you carry the blame of family violence, it feels like everything you do isn't getting looked at from an understanding point of view but from a punishment point of view of you're doing the wrong thing and, and we need to fix that. Um, you know, like Shauna said, getting criminalised um, because of your actions um, that are linked to family violence, um, you know, like like young people using family violence in the home, like shoplifting, um, you know, all these different things like like getting expelled from school, like not having housing, um, like getting taken from your family and put into out-of-home care, which um, the system may not see as a punitive response um, and that they're trying to help the young person and trying to support them. But to a young person's eyes, it could look like, oh, I thought I did the right thing by telling them, but and I have to live with people that I don't know. And, um, you know, some of the time not with their siblings, if that's what they um, people trying to treat your mental illness and feeling like, yeah, everything's your fault, like you keep doing the wrong thing and, and not quite understanding why. I think the service responds with massive waiting lists when you do um, understand that you're experiencing family violence and you try to reach out for support. Family violence has, services have massive waiting lists. Sexual assault services, seven months. Mental health services, six to eight months, even longer. And it isn't good enough. Mm. Family violence services naming this, this is a service for women who have experienced family violence. Mm. When you don't get inside that box and mm. you call services, then it's like, oh, well, this isn't a service for me. This isn't mm. someone who understands my experiences and kind of invalidates others' experiences of family violence too. And, yeah, like I said before, not being believed and taken seriously by police, by court, um, and people not understanding that family violence, um, witnessing it is still family violence, but we experience all forms of family violence, like physical, like emotional, like spiritual, like financial. Um, the court system at the moment not being accessible for children and young people, having to sit in the same waiting room as a person who's used violence against you, not feeling protected, um, walking through the same exits into and out of the courtroom and, and not listening to children, young people. And then I think there's a lot of assumptions made by family violence services as well on what violence we're experiencing and, and labelling people as perpetrators when children, young people may not see them as perpetrators of violence but see them as people that they care about, they may love, um, but they also may not love them. And I think there's important, um, it's important to keep space for both of those realities and, and not make assumptions coming in that a child or young person does love their family or see them as their family, um, but also not using strong language that we may not connect to as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important, the conversation around language. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think there's so many opportunities for the system to support where they are just letting children and young people down. Mm. And there's a lot of laws and legislations that aren't communicated with young people. So we may not be clear what violence is or even that it's against the law, even that it's the wrong thing. And um, depending on the way it gets treated by those around us as well. I imagine it's interesting when I hear you say that because I imagine one of the challenges is that a lot of the things that we call family violence, coercive control, financial abuse um, were historically uh, probably legitimate um, approaches to parenting within our culture and other cultures. And um, 
even now would still be seen as legitimate approaches to parenting by a lot of people. So imagine one of the challenges is, is I guess, changing those attitudes. And second to that, you know, you were talking about um, service or system responses as punishment um, uh, and, you know, the taking away of agency of young people. I imagine, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but any decision that's made about your life without your involvement or consent would, would feel like punishment. Just the fact that you are not in control of your own life would would be experienced as a form of punishment. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Exactly. I think that's so right. And not understanding from the child a young person impacts of that decision is going to be on them. And, um, you know, if they have disclosed violence and you have to report it, um, how would that, who would that child a young person like you to tell? How would mm-hmm. they like talk about it um and what's going to be the impact of them and how can you do some safety planning around that as well and and understanding what that decision to a worker is just a point in time it's just a decision that they probably have to make all the time but to a person that is a decision that changes their life for the rest of their life and how can they feel like what they've said has been listened to and been believed and it's been acted on um with them and not for them yeah absolutely uh shauna you um uh how do you respond to that basically what april said but um also to the question based on on your lived and um professional expertise yeah um sorry before i jump into the legal perspective um I, i just wanted to say that there is a distinct lack of services for or responses for adolescents and young people, um, especially those who are aged between 15 and 21. That goes to, you know, a lot of the things that April mentioned about communication and working with young people or children, and young people. And, you know, so there's no crisis responses designed for young people experiencing family violence. The service system assumes they're accompanying a parent. Um, there's no targeted interventions or specialised case management, no, you know, no family violence crisis accommodation or refuges like they have for, for women experiencing family violence, um, although there needs to be a lot more, of course. Um, the, the typical response for a young person is to be pathwayed or young person experiencing family violence is to be pathwayed um, into the homelessness system. Um, where they currently don't receive any specialised family violence support. It's really important to have that that lens because of the the high level of risk um, to a young person. It doesn't just leave, like April said, when you you leave a home or a parents get divorced. Um, But I guess from a a legal perspective, Simon, the, the Amplify research has uncovered that the vast majority of services, um, both community and government services, are not clear about what, what young people's rights are, including their capacity to make their own decision. This has um, often led to um, those services either restricting access to their services entirely, like having policies that say, no, you know, they're not going to work with anyone under the age of 18, um, or unintentionally diminishing a young person's agency, like April's mentioned. There's, there is definitely a growing um, desire in the sector and in government to uphold children and young people's agency. I've been hearing that a lot more over the last, um, you know, year at least. But it is challenging um, to do so because the actual policy and legal frameworks that apply are really complex, um, ambiguous, and in some cases, they're actually inconsistent. Mm. Um, this is particularly the case for that, you know, mature, mature minors between the age of 15 and 18 um, who are not under the care of child protection. So we regularly heard from practitioners that they were unsure whether they could provide family violence support to someone under the age of 18 without the parental consent, even if it's the parent that is perpetrating the violence. Um, There was fear that they could be sued for kidnapping or they'd lose their funding from government. Um, There was uncertainty as to whether a young person could enter a legal contract or whether they could be placed um, in a hotel for their protection, because that is just um, a very common response to keep women safe um, or try to keep women safe and escaping violence is to put them in hotels. But there is a question about whether or not you can put a young person under the age of 18 in a hotel room by themselves. You know, um, a lot of this was wanting to make sure that they were fulfilling um, their duty of care. And these are very fair and reasonable concerns. You know, I'm even um, to a lawyer, I can see that the law is extremely um, confusing in this space. And 
I guess in addition to the ambiguity and complexity, there are also inconsistencies, like I mentioned before, in the laws that apply. For example, um, a young person cannot apply for an intervention order until the age of 14, but they can have an intervention order imposed on them from the age of 10. Um, another example is a young person you know, living in a violent home can leave home at 15 and stay with a friend, but they can't access Centrelink's unreasonable to live at home benefit yet, which just you know, is entirely, you know, that, that kind of, I guess it is a, um, how the state and federal laws interlink or policies link, but also, you know, state-based when it comes to the intervention order system. Yeah. Um, and because of this confusion about rights and agency, young people are either not receiving services um, or are not being heard in terms of decision-making that affect their safety. And as April pointed out before, in some instances, um, decisions are made by schools or police, um, health services to turn um, to, to return young people back to unsafe homes. And this confusion um, is also felt by young people as a consequence. Um, you know, it, it's virtually impossible for a young person under the age of 18 who is experiencing family violence to enforce their rights. Um, not a lot of people know what those rights are in the first place. So I think this is a really, um, you know, great pickup by the research. And I think there's a lot of opportunity here to, to, um, to educate and raise awareness of children and young people's rights. Yeah, wow. And I suppose, I'll, well, maybe I'll just take a second to reflect on what that all brings up for me um, from a, a legal or <laughs> regulatory perspective. Um, you know, in, in Victoria, we have a, a charter, a Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act. And that sets out human rights that all Victorians enjoy when they're, um, when they're experiencing services or they um, are interacting with a public authority or when a public authority is just making a decision they have obligations under the Charter. Now, when I'm hearing um, that services are making um, decisions that are um, restricting young people's liberty on perhaps an unequal basis than they would for an adult or... Um, that um, in general, there might be like restrictions on people's movements and whatnot. To me, that all raises questions of, of charter compatibility and whether our laws and whether our publicly funded services or, or departments that are developing the frameworks for those publicly funded services are acting in a way that are consistent with young people's human rights. Now, I'm not sure, Shauna, if this Amplifier report has, has raised questions around the Charter or the Equal Opp Opportunity Act, but I guess a, a question without notice there. Yeah, um, no, it didn't, it didn't specifically touch on those two areas. I have done some work um, in, in previous years looking at the need to include, you know, um, victim survivors or young people experiencing homelessness um, or, or people experiencing it both. Um, within the the um, the um, protections as a specific cohort, I think um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do in this space. But I will will say that you know um, there is a lot of confusion around the current laws um, and policies, and and a lot of um, the decisions made by services is is really out of mm. um, you know trying to protect and keep safe the young people. It's just um, they're kind of operating without the knowledge of what their rights are or they're, or they're trying to find out and there's not, you know, clear um, resources or communication. So I do think um, this, this um, research has highlighted the need to really kind of invest in this space and make sure that um, every, you know, all these services and organisations that keep talking about how, um, you know, they respect a, a child and young person's agency, they actually know what the, their agency is, I guess, in the first place and can then shape their, um, their policies and procedures accordingly. So I think it really is an educative piece and you'd hope that um, it would then comply with the, the charters as well and the Equal Opportunity Act. Yeah, thank you for talking me through that. And Well, why don't we move to the next question, which is, okay, well, so we've, we've definitely charted the problems. But what would success look like? Success to me would look like children and young people being involved in every step of the way in their own lives, but also in creating change with systemic advocacy as well. Um, like these terms that put out of duty of care or the child's best interests, but aren't taking into account 
what the child or young person thinks is their best interest yeah. and what they think care is and um, how that looks like for them as well. It's, it's very much these government ways of working that don't include children, young people and aren't accessible language to us and um, isn't something that we feel like we're a part of. It's almost something over there that is this regulation on us that we're not mm. in. Um, and on that Centrelink point that Shauna mentioned before as well, to just to add to that with the unreasonable to live at home, in that process, you have to write down all of your experiences of family violence um, every time you've left home and then a contact number so that they can call your parents and the person using violence um, to speak about what you've said, which isn't understanding the complexities of family violence and it's also not accessible. And if you're a young person who already distrusts the system um, because of many different reasons, and then especially if you're a young person who hasn't had child protection involvement and um, that thing that's seen as really negative and you don't want child protection involvement to write down everything that happened and potentially speak about siblings and, and other people in the family. It's like, oh, I've been trying to hide all of this from the department and now I need to tell them everything that's bad that's ever happened, um, which they not, may not be ready to. And they not, may not be in a space where they can or they feel safe to. Mm. And to expect that of children and young people to get financial support, um, to become independent and to become safe in a house where they feel like is their home. They can make the rules of who comes and who goes. They can um, live safely and um, support themselves, which is such a, a big, um, it's, it's such an important thing that children and young people need the autonomy and, um, you know, victim survivors more broadly need financial independence to live safe free from violence. Um, and I think that's just a, a bigger conversation that needs to be had. Um, and, yeah, just not, not trying to make children and young people fit into the government reform and the government timelines. Uh, this isn't accessible or something that makes sense to us or something that we not even want to be involved in, but we still want to make change within our own right and in our own ways of working. And there needs to be space for this and um, and support for time to figure out what change would look like for us and, and initiatives um, to support people with lived experience and peer support workers in every stage of service design and delivery through groups like Why Change and Safe and Equals Youth Advisory Group. Um, it's such important spaces for young people with lived experience to connect with other young people who've been through similar things to what they've been through. And it feels like you have your own language with people who've been through what you've been through um, and have to explain things because they just get it just understand even though every experience is different there's that um, there's still that common language between other young people and um, there really needs to be more financial support in spaces like that um, that give young people a job and give that financial independence and also that um, support for the government to to reform um, the family violence system and sector I think you know like mentioned in the amplifier report Children and young people need specific family violence services, um, enough capacity, so we're not on the waiting list for life-saving support. It was fucked before COVID, but now it's even more fucked. Um, you know, it needs to be holistic and understands the nature of family violence and the impacts like school and housing and mental health. And um, I think that children and young people shouldn't have to have 10 different workers for their 10 different um, things that they need support with. They need one worker who's just like, I'm here for you. Let's, let's figure this out together. Instead of saying, you know, you a family violence service. No, we can't help you with housing. You have to go. Um, and, you know, then often children, young people get labeled as disengaging from services and, and not participating. And um, mm -hmm. actually we've got a lot that we're holding right now and, and mm -hmm. talking different workers telling our story 10 different times um, to get the support we need isn't something that's accessible.
I think um, Victoria Police, they do have a specialist family violence unit, um, but there isn't enough family violence um, in the in the family violence unit. There needs to be more and there needs to be police officers that young people can visually see that they're different from the rest of the Victoria Police. Mm-hmm. Someone that can gain a bit of trust within different communities and with children and young people and and be there to believe them, to support them and to not cause further harm. I think there needs to be better education. Um, There needs to be better education around family violence for children, young people. Uh, Respectful relationships is a start. It's um, in a lot of schools now, but it's also not enough. There's a lot of children, young people who've been excluded from education, who can't go to school or don't go to school. And there needs to be some education around family violence more broadly for those children, young people who, who probably need it the most. Yeah, thank you, April. And just on that education point, I imagine one of the, the areas that are needed to be focused on is uh, educating parents on appropriate relationships, given that we've highlighted that mm, some of the assumptions about what is good or, parent, good or bad parenting um, might be outdated or might need changing. Um, Shauna, I'm wondering, how do, you, how do you respond to that as well? What does success uh, look like to you? I guess a family violence system that takes an intersectional approach and uh, recognises children and young people as victim survivors in their own right, to put it simply, um, which means that there is targeted and specialist family violence responses designed specifically for young people and, you know, by and and with young people. Effectively, we need programs that places um, a young person over the age of 15, because under 15 is generally in the child and family services sector, Um, but for a young person over the age of 15 who is the primary client um, instead of their mother or parent. So really having um, a program that has them as the primary um, client and, and they're the ones making, I guess, the decisions are working with the whole family, but they're the, um, the decision maker. Mm-hmm. It's essential also to provide targeted support earlier for a young um, person escaping family violence and not wait to intervene until, you know, they present to services as an adult experiencing intimate partner violence or perpetrating violence. It's that real, the, um, you know, really important to provide that early intervention Um, If we can wrap support around a child or a young person experiencing family violence, I think we have a shot at ending or at least significantly reducing family violence and violence against women into the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, by overlooking young people, children, young people, we are compromising the potential of the whole family violence reform. We really need to end the, the intergenerational transmission of family violence and trauma. Yeah, That's what I think a perfect system would look like. Thank you, Shauna. And, and we need that vision. We need that vision of what good looks like. But I guess now the question is, so we know where our true north is, we know where we need to go, but how do we get there? And what is the role of government and what kind of policies do we need? I'll start with you, April, and then move to you, Shauna. We need true support from the government. We need an investment in, in like what we talked about before, youth-specific services, and a commitment to actively seek and partner with children and young people with a lived experience. Um, in, I'm sorry, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and you, Shauna? Sure, I have a list of my long, Simon, so I'm happy to, I'm happy to share. Um, and April, jump in <laughs> if you'd like. Um, so firstly, I think government needs to develop and fund family violence programs, specifically like young pe- for young people aged probably that 15 to 24 years old, um, including early intervention and crisis responses. So we need to really ensure all young victim survivors have a pathway to specialist support, not just, you know, I guess a homelessness service. Mm-hmm. Um, the government needs to invest in capacity building, the youth sector and the youth homelessness sector, Um, and other sectors um, like they've done for the mental health and alcohol and other drug um, or what they're doing for them. Uh, We need to invest in new crisis or develop as well new crisis accommodation models for young people escaping family violence and not simply um, referring them again to a a youth homelessness refuge, which might be totally inappropriate for for what they're going through and, and the risk that's involved. 
we need housing, of course. Uh, we need more social housing for young people so they don't have to make the choice between, well, it's not really a choice, but effectively having to make a choice between remaining in violent homes or becoming homeless because that's kind of the decision that a young person has to make. They don't have uh, any rights over the property like perhaps their, you know, a mother would. Um, that's been some great changes to the law there. But, um, you know, a young person has, they're not on the lease. They don't have anything to do with the mortgage. They, they effectively, they make the decision to um, enforce their rights, take an intervention order or, or um at least identify and report the violence, you know, they end up homeless at this point. So we really need to invest in that crisis as well as the longer-term supported housing. Mm. Um, and as I touched on earlier, the government needs to review existing laws and policies that relate, and this is all governments, um, Commonwealth and state, um, to all the laws and policies that relate to young victim survivors. Um, and some of them need to be reformed that I touched on. And we spoke before about Centrelink, uh, there's a huge need to reform um, that that space, especially the unreasonable to live at home uh, allowance. Where I've seen, you know, as a as a community lawyer on the ground, I saw too many instances where the decision to apply for it, if they could, would also then uh, mean the the end of the family tax benefit to the parents um, and a debt to the parents. And you can imagine what kind of risk a young person will be put at in mm. when all of a sudden a, a, a parent who's using violence already is, you know, their money's taken away and they've got a debt. So mm. I think there's some, there's some areas there that need to really be explored as well as what April mentioned before. Um, we also need risk frameworks adapted for young people and their mm. developmental stages, um, which there's some work being done now, which is great to see in Victoria. And of course, we need more resources created for and by young people and Barry Streets Why Change, you know, been doing some incredible work in this space, um, but they need more funding to do more. Uh, I think this is just the beginning. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, opportunity there to really bring the system and rights and agency um, to young people. And the only way that's going to happen is by including um, children and young people in that process from the beginning and how um, otherwise just not going to work um, in terms of creating resources and information. Mm. So it's probably how I see some, some, you know, some steps the government can do now to, to really um, fix the family violence system so that children and young people can be recognised as victim survivors as well. Yes, yes. Well, I, I think your timing is impeccable there, Shauna, because we are in an election year, so Victorians can consider any progress on this area when they go to the polls. But what you say there also highlights to me that this is a largely overlooked policy area. We obviously had a, a Royal Commission five or six years ago, but there is a gap here around the needs of young people. And I, I suspect that we are likely to have another inquiry of some description, a parliamentary inquiry, um, an inquiry from a, from a commission like the Children's and young, Children and Young People or... Um, uh, another Royal Commission. And what I guess if I can plant a flag and say on the record is if you don't have a young person in a leadership role as a commissioner, if it's a commission-based inquiry, then I think you have monumentally fucked up as a government and, and as a body and that your findings should not be treated as credible. And so I guess I just want to plant a flag there because I know young people are excluded from these processes and in general people with lived experience and critical lived experience are left out of these processes. And I spoke about that in an earlier podcast about uh, a, uh, a cultural review into the custodial settings here in Victoria. And I just want to say that that's an expectation that young people should legitimately have for any inquiries that affect them in the future. Well said. Can I nominate April? <laughs> yes, I uh, nominate April too. All right, so we're at the end of our journey. You've um, you've taken us, um, you know, through the family violence system, its failings as it as it relates to young people. Now you've got the ear of the listeners. What's one thing that you want them to go away and do after listening to you today? I think the one thing I would want people to do is start a conversation in their organisation or department around young people's lived experience and if you aren't engaging with young people lived experience how can you I'm just gonna say that sorry I think the one thing that I would want 
people to do after listening to this podcast is if you in if you in your organization or department or service aren't engaging with young people with a lived experience as experts in service design, your policy, your um, legislation, how can you advocate to hear the voices of children and young people? Or if you are already doing youth engagement in your work, how can you elevate what children and young people are saying? Thanks, April. And you, Shauna? I'd ask everyone to go back to their respective workplaces and review um, existing policies and procedures and their practices, um, and even their funding agreements to make sure that they're not unnecessarily restricting a young person's access to their service or diminishing a young person's capacity uh, if you're supporting them already. And of course, I'd encourage everyone to jump online and read the Amplify report, um, or if they would like to contact me to learn more about the work, they're more than welcome. Thanks, Shauna. We'll put your details in the show notes. Thank you both, April and Shauna. It has been my absolute privilege to talk to you today. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having us.